Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We have an extra episode this week with Adam Tooze and Helen Thompson, not about Brexit, but about everything else. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. We might not do everything else, but we'll try and cover quite a lot here and pick up on some things. Adam, we've talked to you over the last year at various moments and some themes recur. So one, thinking back to our previous conversation, is that we've often talked about the next head of the ECB appointment being really important for the future of the global economy and European politics. We now know who that person is, Christine Lagarde. She takes up her post relatively soon. She gave one of her sort of preliminary Mm -hmm. statements to the European Parliament in which she said, among other things, that it's on national governments to think about how they're going to deal with some of the economic threats coming up. So it sounded kind of Mm anti-German, I may be wrong. And she's, of course, French. Does it fit into a kind of French victory in those Euro struggles, the Lagarde appointment? I think it does. I'm not sure that I would see it necessarily as an anti-German statement because the the block of states within the EU, within the Eurozone, which has been resistant to the Macron agenda now extends well beyond Germany. I mean, the Netherlands have really been carrying the weight of the opposition. So it's Germany Um, plus. Yeah, and Germany, in a sense, is kind of a bit of a cipher right now because of the discombobulation of German politics and the weakness of the the grand coalition government that emerged from, from the seismic election. But I do take your point that this is a very clear assertion by Lagarde of the necessity of continuing the Draghi agenda, but of augmenting the Draghi agenda with fiscal policy action. And that's really the the big question mark, whether that can happen. I mean, her line, you know, I am not a fairy will go down as kind of, you know, (laughs) really an immortal line for a candidate for the central banking presidency. So there is a struggle going on about the instruments of economic policy in the Eurozone and who will wield them. And We have an instance here, not for the first time, of a central banker demanding action from the fiscal side, but the opposite of what Trichet was doing. So Trichet and Draghi, in fact, asked for austerity at key moments, and Lagarde is saying the opposite. And she also said, I never want to be in the position of saying whatever it takes, because if I say that, it's because you guys haven't stepped up. So don't put me in that position. And there's also the, you know, the outstanding agenda really of fundamental Eurozone structural and institutional reform beyond the immediate urgency of what appears to be really quite a severe downturn in the Eurozone. There are fundamental unresolved issues really to do with the hoary old issues that we've been talking about ever since 2008. Banking union as the absolute heart of it and the still outstanding issue of Italy's sovereign debt, which, which is just too large to be comfortable given Italy's growth rates and nominal GDP growth overall in the Eurozone. So that agenda is still there. And yes, to be at all confident that your spell as ECB president is going to be business as usual, you you need somebody else to to act. I think there's a kind of paradox in what she's said uh, in relation to Draghi's position, because you could read her as saying, look, I don't want to do all that monetary accommodation, at least on the scale that Draghi's doing. She's not going to undo it. But in one sense, that's quite a reassuring thing to hear if you're a 
German Conservative, who's been pretty unkeen on the way in which the ECB's been run in monetary terms since Draghi took over. The other side of it is very fiscally expansionary, or at least potential, saying, look, you governments have to do fiscal things. And basically, Draghi has said, when it really came to it, that he wanted the emphasis on the fiscal side to be on stopping the Italians go down the road of fiscal expansion. And this is where it gets into a pretty difficult position because on the one hand, you can make an argument that would say, look, that it is the case that the German government needs to be more fiscally expansionary. Though I think there's a counter argument to that as to whether it would work or not, but we can maybe talk about that later. But it's much harder to say, yes, that what we need from the Italians is to spend more, borrow more. And that runs into the difficulty that the Commission has just spent all this time trying to stop the Italian Mm. government going down that road so it's it's quite a complicated message in it i don't i don't think it can just be constructed into something that's anti-german or pro-french no i do think that this issue that the hands pointing out about the the balance of activism as it were who acts is absolutely crucial the condition for making italian fiscal activism safe would be some agreement to collectivize a large portion of italy's sovereign debt and of course by way of the ecb's bond purchases a large portion of it already is And yet the issue of how that's accounted for, whose balance sheet it's on, and in worst case scenarios, whose balance sheet it falls onto, is really the essence of the entire Target 2 debate in Germany. That's really the neuralgic issue. Right now, it's not a pressing issue for the financial markets because the ECB or it's the Bank of Italy is holding such a large portion of that. On the other hand, as Helen's saying, like, is the German economy really the location that you would want to uh, activate a major fiscal stimulus? It's an economy already showing signs in some areas of overheating, quote unquote, though this is modest. It's the German side sort of overheating. But nevertheless, you have intense pressure on housing markets, given the existing structure of housing regulation in Germany and the hotspots of German growth. So it would be a choice for a deliberately unbalanced fiscal policy push and it would be one that you would then presumably have to couple with a migration policy as well in the sense that you would be basically saying we're going to drive the eurozone economy in a deliberately unbalanced way and then hope to help the unemployment problems of Spain and Italy by a large-scale movement. The significant thing that's changed in the last six months is that the stars at least temporarily may be aligning because after all the German manufacturing economy is looking like it's facing a very serious downturn. So this might actually be a moment where one could imagine a political deal being done between the North and the South because the growth engine of German manufacturing is slowing down. If Salvini in Italy had got his way and triggered elections that he looked like he was about to win, people would be thinking that the guard was coming in and was about to immediately face this big political confrontation with Italy. The opposite has happened in that... In Italy, they've they've done what in this country we haven't managed to do yet, which is create a government of national unity mm. to get them through a tricky period around elections that no one wants. But Salvini's still there on the sidelines. And of course, there's the possibility that if, if that anti-populist, if that's the word for it, because it includes the five-star movement, government is there when the bad stuff happens, Salvini's very well placed. So it's been deferred. It's not been seen off that... What would have been the immediate challenge, which was a confrontation with a new government in Rome? No, I mean, it's been a very interesting series of moves in Italian politics, as I think one needs to tease out that they that you invoke, what they have done. I mean, what's interesting about the Italian situation is that as in 2018, as well after the immediate shock of the great you know, breakthrough of Five Star and the Lega, 
uh, the presidency has actually served as a kind of autonomous constitutional arbiter, really leaning heavily against the populists, picking and choosing the finance minister that was acceptable in 2018, and basically holding the line, giving Salvini's opponents enough time to actually form a government, and doing so in a highly self-confident manner, stark contrast to the situation to we've seen in the UK. Queen. Exactly, who... who you know, his fundamental source of legitimacy is her is her unpolitical status. Mattarello is doing a politician's job. I mean, he's a superordinate type of politician or a politician one removed or a different type of politician, but no one denies the legitimacy of his political role, except, of course, his victims. And the Lega will now, as you're saying, they will run a massively anti-elite campaign. They will pillory the government as being the product of the G7 meeting. Basically, the new government looks as though it's a tool of Monty is really the bugbear, right? So this to the Italian right looks as though it's a rerun of the scenario with the ousting of Berlusconi in the fall of 2011. And it pretty much is a rerun of the ousting of Berlusconi. And this time, pressure from, from the German government in particular, Merkel, the president was very involved in the removal of Berlusconi and putting not just Monti into office, but a whole technocratic cabinet. And it is that, after all, that begins the significant rise of, first of all, Five Star, mm-hmm. and which is the immediate beneficiaries, actually, of that technocratic move by the Italian president and eventually the league. So I think if we want to say that this very politicised head of state is something that brings political stability (laughs) in contrast to ours, I'd be a bit sceptical about that interpretation. It's not a question of stability, though. It's just another degree of... So remember, one more degree of freedom. But it's buying time for what? I think that's the question. That what's happened is you just keep accumulating the consequences of acting in this way so that when Salvini eventually is the victor, which I think in the end there's a good probability, high probability that he will be, that you've actually got to take some of the responsibility for having created that situation. I mean, it is profoundly ironic that Five Star, which were the great beneficiaries, as Helen's saying, of the 2011, I mean, really it was Monty that created Five Star as a mass movement, that they now are part of the logic of the exclusion of Salvini. I think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see whether... The Salvini, his obvious next move, which is to go into a massive people against the politicians, people against the elite kind of position, how far he has to link that to a supercharged anti-EU rhetoric. And a lot will depend on what the deal is that Rome can now cut with Brussels and Frankfurt. So I think the sort of the grand, grand synthesis of, you know, if there was a centrist technocratic kind of vision is that Lagarde is part of the puzzle whereby, as it were, you soften the ECB's position at a crucial moment. There's some negotiation over an easing of the fiscal policy stance in macroeconomic terms. That reduces the pressure on Rome so that this new coalition in Rome has a leg to stand on when faced with Salvini's assault. That drives Salvini into a vividly anti-European position, which is not majoritarian in Italy. So you tempt him to go down the Farage kind of route and we're back in, in the Brexit scenario. In other words, the centrist gamble that the anti-EU position is marginal, and that's what you stake the success of your, your government on. That will help, as with Cameron, if Brussels gives you something, if Brussels actually can ease the position of the local centrists fighting for attachment. I think, given the opinion polling in Italy, we're a ways away from the UK scenario because a clear majority of Italians still favour it 
unbelievably, even the euro, not just the EU as such, we're not in the kind of territory that the UK was when it was incredibly finely balanced before the referendum. There's another thing, though, I think, that just on the question about whether we're going to see a move to fiscal accommodation in the eurozone is I think you've got to be pretty sceptical about any idea that the German economy is suitable for fiscal stimulus to lead the eurozone out of the position in which it it now is is because what we're seeing in Germany I mean Germany it's become clear in the last week had a negative quarter in the second quarter of this year are dynamics that aren't really to do with what's going on in other parts of the eurozone first of all they're much more to do with China and I think to some extent to do with the the euro dollar system and Deutsche Bank than they are to do with the problems that Italy or the other southern European countries are facing so there's no common eurozone problem at the moment and the second thing is is that the German economy, and this is one of the reasons why it's struggling, is export-centric. That's the whole basis on which it's run for a long time. It's not going to respond to stimulating domestic demand. It's going to look much more like what Japan did when you kept trying to have attempts at fiscal accommodation in order to deal with Japan's problems in the 1990s that don't actually produce results. I wholeheartedly agree with Helen as a diagnosis of the current status quo, but if we accept that the current status quo is basically dangerous then the agenda of fiscal policy has to be much more transformative. I mean, it has to be seen in the context of something like the Green New Deal. I mean, if we're serious about energy transition, it needs to start now. The German engineering sector, broadly speaking, is a key component of that. The success of the strategy, I would wholeheartedly agree, would depend on changing that status quo, insofar as Germany remains in its current export-led model. They don't even right now, it appears, have, as it were, the native construction industry capacity ready to respond to a stimulus because there's been a 10-year recession in the construction sector there. So whenever you make the case for fiscal stimulus to people in Berlin, they say, well, that's all very well, but you know, the order books for large-scale construction projects in Germany run to five years and, and nimbyism in the regulatory system means that you can't get a power line built even if you've agreed to do so. That, to me, is not an argument for saying, well, in that case, let's walk away from the problem and maybe focus on the new Bretton Woods. Under the current circumstances and the urgency of the green issue, that suggests how radical this transformation's got to be. So the kind of Green New Deal-ish type thinking, I think, would, to answer Helen, have to be part of the package. So Adam, you wrote in the New York Times this week, and we'll tweet the link to an article where you link up a lot of related global issues, that there is a question about what kind of crisis would trigger a fiscally expansionary policy in Germany, a sort of change of mindset. Mm-hmm. Is that the crisis you had in mind? Because I wondered whether you meant that or, or you meant you know, the, an immediate political crisis, maybe including what the knock-on effects of a hard Brexit or whatever it is. Well, this, but something has to yeah. give. Something has to give. And, 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 you know, I think there's a sort of Bismarckian temptation, you know, if people are looking for some sort of supreme balancing figure, that, that all seems to me to be very much beside the point. What is happening in Germany is a very significant shift led by the Green Party, who are no longer a marginal fringe party. They are essentially the progressive centrist party in German politics in the moment, no longer the SPD. It's a sort of Tony Blair, New Labour kind of a moment, really, in terms of the realignment of German politics. And they've come out fairly forcefully against the debt break in favour of an investment-led approach to what they, I think, quite rightly identify as the key challenge, which is energy transition. So 
that's, I think, where the lead is coming from. And the question is, how does the current coalition break and how is it then reassembled with the Greens as being a key or, if, or indeed possibly even the anchoring party in that coalition? One could fantasise about a transformative crisis in the German auto sector as being a key driver here. That has a different phasing, again, to take up Helen's point, from the more general recession in exports. I mean, there is a epochal crisis in our mobility system heading our way in the next 10 to 15 years, and the Germans are going to be in the bullseye of that. And the more proactively they respond, and right now there was quite a lot of energy in Germany for a proactive response, the more likely I think one could see a really constructive answer to the multidimensional problems that Helen was identifying. And I ge- I'm asking a question to which I don't have any idea what the answer is, which is always dangerous. But um, the AFD, who did very well in the elections yeah. this week, um, I think I saw you tweeted this, a link to a piece of polling where their opponents think people don't vote for them for their domestic programme, they vote for them because they're racist or whatever. Yeah. But the people who vote for them say we are actually voting for a programme. Now that programme presumably is, this is the bit I'm guessing it is itself, wanting to spend a lot more money internally in Germany, is it, on on the east, transfer from west to east? Uh, implicitly, though, the AFD's economic policy is really, it's one of their... So what is this programme that people are voting for? If anyone for? could land a punch on them on that, it would actually be quite damaging to them. It's the flip side of the De Linker's vulnerability on the migration question. The thing that the AFD has mobilised heavily in the East is obviously the migration problem or the refugee problem. And the other thing is they're the only German party of climate denial now. They are a, a pro-coal party. They, they are an anti-green party. The Greens are really the bugbears of the AFD, not De Linker, because De Linker is local and De Linker is basically toying with a similarly sort of national protectionist position on Labour. De Linker are the quintessential West German liberal middle class party. And they are perfect targets for the AFD in the East because of the Greens' emphasis on the speed of energy transition. And Germany is the largest coal consumer in Europe. And the East, as the supplier of lignite to those power stations, is neuralgic. Now, the total number of jobs is not huge, actually. And for a country as rich as Germany, it would be easy to absorb this. And they have, with the coal compromise, you know, spelled out an incredibly expensive transition they're going to go down. But it makes red meat for the AFD. They don't even need to articulate a coherent policy. They'll just say we're in favour of diesel. Big issue in Germany. We're in favour of coal. And we're opposed to foreigners. So that sounds like Queensland politics yes. in the, in oh, the yeah. Australian election. Yeah. That, that was how or that West one Virginia turned. Or West yeah. Virginia. Yeah. So Helen, as you said, then the, among the problems facing the German economy go way beyond Europe and they are potentially caught in the US-China trade wars. So we also have a bit of really acute political brinkmanship going on between the Federal Reserve in the United States and the American president. Are the stakes higher there? So Lagarde comes in and there are going to be some tough choices and some big decisions to be made in Europe. But is that actually secondary to the to the big issue, which is US-China and then within the US, Trump versus Powell? Yes, I think. But I'm not sure whether actually the, the underlying causal dynamics are actually the confrontation between Trump and the Fed or indeed even the US-China trade relationship. Because I think that quite a lot of what is going on at the moment is a kind of like fight almost like a narrative fight about what is responsible for the undoubted downturn in the world economy over probably about 18 months now. And Germany, interestingly, in some sense, is that, you know, an outlier. And it, you can see it most clearly because they have struggled for pretty much all of that time. And it's striking that they are both an export economy because that reflects the importance of international trade to what's going on. But if you then say, well, that is the US-China trade conflict that Trump's 
brought about but is now supported by pretty much most of Washington, then you've got a difficult time explaining why Germany's problems started as early as they did. So that's one thing. And then you've got the fact that the German economy is particularly dependent on the Chinese economy, more so in some sense than the Americans. I mean, Merkel, Adam can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think she's on her 12th official visit to China this weekend. And she's got to deal not only with the consequences of the US-China trade relationship for German exports. She's got to deal with the Hong Kong problem in relation to dealing with China. And then she's got to deal with the Deutsche Bank problem in relation to China's position in Hong Kong, where Deutsche Bank has actually got some presence. And the whole issue of like, well, can China really have a serious confrontation with Hong Kong without threatening Hong Kong's central importance to China in financial terms. And so trying to work out how the different bits of this fit together and what is actually causing the weakness in the world economy actually I think is more important than the conflict between Trump and the Fed. Having said that, they're all quite keen on blaming each other and taking some aspect of what's going on and saying, oh, 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 it's really that. So the Fed that they can say, okay, the problems in the American economy are because of this disruptive president and his trade policies. It's not clear that that's the case, but it's similarly far from clear that Trump could sort the American economy's problems out to the extent that they're solvable in any sense by the Fed doing what he wanted. So it's actually quite bewildering what's going on at the moment. Adam, you use this phrase in, in your New York Times piece, nationalist theatrics, I think, to describe the Fed-White House standoff. The implication being it's theatrics because it's a show, but the real story is somewhere else, or that it really matters? Well, I think the show really matters. I mean, a, a viable thesis in the game of Trump interpretation is that it's just show the whole thing from start to finish, right? And so this spectacle of continuous conflict, first with foreign foes and then with domestic foes, is, as it were, the essence of the entire game. And it is what differentiates him from Democrats, who I would agree with Helen, have swung around to a position of fronting up against China, both in security policy, potentially on human rights, and also on trade. But they don't engage then in this metastasizing kind of conflict narrative where if for a while you settle the things with China, you then move on to assaulting Mexico and Canada. And sometimes it's an escalatory logic where you ain't seen nothing yet. So if you think this is bad, look, I'm going to go after the Europeans next, then when markets respond in the way you would expect them to do, which is that if you're going to have an increase in tariffs, then it's quite likely that currencies will adjust. Then, of course, Trump moves on to the next line, which is, well, who's responsible for currencies? The Fed's responsible for currencies. What have they done on interest rates? Why haven't they acted on that? So it's this sort of omnivorous kind of belligerence. And I think that's what really differentiates him from a Schumer or somebody like that, who has now swung the Democrats, a large part of that party, into a position which in some senses does line up with Trump on China, but is clearly not going to engage in that roundhouse kind of explosive politics. I, I mean, I, I agree in very large part with what Helen's saying. I mean, I think the vulnerability of the, the German economy I mean, is not just to trade conflict, after all, it's just to the Chinese business cycle. And the Chinese business cycle is slowing. And certain key areas of that, I mean, notably auto sales, it's the biggest car market in the world. It has since been since 2008. It's pretty hard to exaggerate the significance of the auto industry to Germany. And it's pretty hard to exaggerate the significance of China to VW. And so there is a kind of ripple effect here, whether or not there is a trade war which the Germans are going to have to adjust to. As this spirals outwards, however, I mean, I do think the state of conflict between the Fed and the executive branch in the US is inquiring an intensity which is 
quite unprecedented. And when you've got somebody like an insider like Bill Dudley on Bloomberg the other week, basically spelling out the dilemma of Powell, which is, do I respond in an accommodative fashion to Trump's belligerence on trade, thereby possibly encouraging further belligerence and potentially increasing the probability of his re-election? Or do I take a kind of meta view of my responsibility towards the stability of the US economy, which leads me to the inevitable conclusion that the major challenge, the major risk for the stability of the US economy is the man in the White House, and then draw the conclusion that really I have to do everything in my power to ensure he's not re-elected. In other words, the position a central banker normally takes with regard to a left-wing government, where they will uninhibited say, look, priority number one is containing this government. They're a threat. So we do whatever's necessary and we sacrifice short-run macroeconomic stability to that because in the long run, it's important to get, say, just for sake of argument, a figure like Corbyn out of government. That's what we're beginning to see being spelled out. And the Fed will distance itself from somebody like Dudley as quickly as they possibly can. But everyone knows. I mean, he's just, he's just said the emperor has no clothes. This is the Fed's dilemma. Like, If they now accommodate they are making it more likely that Trump will be re-elected, who will then pursue a second-term presidency with a supercharged version of this kind of nationalist rhetoric. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Just one bit of sort of Trump analysis, and I have written about this. There is a pathology there which is consistent his absolute obsession is he thinks being betrayed by the people he appoints so he said of Powell I made him you know it's totally different from Yellen in the same way his complete pathological obsession with Sessions was because if Trump gives you the job and you let him down there's a part of him that it makes deranged so I mean even like low-level appointments within his administration he if he chooses to hire you you're his guy. And this looks like the ultimate version of that. And it's not going to end well. I mean, with Sessions, he could not let it go and he can't let this one go. It's really dangerous. I agree, but it's not unprecedented. I do think we have to be clear about this. I mean, if you go back to, you know, like 1965, when William Martin was um, Federal Reserve Board President and he was raised interest rates in 1965, Lyndon Johnson hauled him down to his ranch in Texas practically shoved him around the room and told him that his boys were dying in Vietnam and he needed to print money in order to make that happen. Now, in the end, Martin didn't give in to Johnson's pressure, but Arthur Burns, in in the run-up to the 1972 election, under similar pressure, though minus the um, throwing around the room, from Nixon, did. So he did accommodate the president in 1972 because Nixon also, he was absolutely obsessed with the idea that the reason why he lost to John Kennedy in 1960 was because... 
the Fed had raised interest rates in the run up to the election. So this whole relationship um, between the Fed and the president is pretty politically charged historically. Now, I do think that Trump's... Trump's doing it in public. I mean, was Johnson hauling him over the coals, as it were, in public? I think it was quite well known. It certainly was well known in policymaking circles as to what Johnson's attitude towards William Martin was. I mean, I think two things is, A, in the intervening period, I mean, maybe this is a way of squaring this. In the intervening period, of course, Fed autonomy took on an entirely new status. And figures like Volcker, Greenspan and Menenke commanded a kind of personal authority that is itself a historic novelty. So in a sense, if we're reverting to the politics of the Fed in the 60s and 70s, that in itself is a significant historical shift. And the other thing that I think is truly astonishing is Trump's willingness to overlay his criticism of Powell with accusations essentially of a kind of treachery. And Um, and to be clear, he didn't just say, I made him. He said, he was a nobody and I made him. No one had ever heard of this guy until I made him. So, I mean, the, the kind of radicalism and savagery, really, of the criticism because Trump is putting everything on the line. He's not just saying, well, I disagree about your judgment about interest rates. What he's really saying is I disagree with your kind of people managing the American national economy the way you do and have for the last decades, which is why we're facing American carnage, right? So there's a kind of a heightened nature to this criticism, which certainly in in U.S. commentary circles is is reviewed as a major and qualitative shift. I think it's both things. I think that it's, it's clearly the case that Trump behaves in ways in terms of his personality or behaviour arises from his personality that is not like what has come before. But I think the reason why you get from Volcker, you know, like onwards, this period in which you actually have presidents laying off central bankers is, is because gradually monetary policy became depoliticised, even though the Volcker increases in interest rate produced a very politicised monetary policy. We're reverting to the world the way it was for a long time in which the question of who made monetary policy decisions was a crucial part of democratic politics. I I think it was politicised in the 80s in just a different way that it's just that Reagan accepted what Volcker was doing. It's the 90s and the 2000s again that are the the outlier. Now, it's being, as usual, amplified (laughs) by Trump because of who he is but the structural change has taken place one more structural condition is that the americans are suffering virtually no bond market punishment for this extraordinary public dysfunction i mean if you think about the clinton administration if anything like this had happened in the early 90s we would have the bond vigilantes would really have clubbed the clinton administration there is something extraordinarily weird gone on in global capital markets which means that there is this freedom essentially of somebody like trump to engage in this behavior and at the same time american interest rates plunge i mean we're in you know alice in wonderland essentially in the bond markets and that frees up this kind of uh, politicization Again, I think it's interesting to qualify because it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not the rest of the Republican Party will really go along with this. I mean, when Trump tried to appoint truly unqualified people to the Fed board, the Republicans in Congress have pushed back. This may be finally a red line in the way that trade policy has not turned out to be, where chunks of the Republican establishment do actually intervene in ways that check not the personal abuse of the Fed chair, but the broader effort, as it were, to transform the people in key positions and the personnel in the Fed. So it feels dangerous that there should be this freedom that no one quite understands what's the breaking point that's being tested. Well, it feels because political. I'm totally point. with Helen. It is a repoliticization. But, which... also, but where does the freedom run out? I mean, at what point does 
does the thing that would have happened 10, 20 years ago come back into focus? But I think there can't be complete license that Trump can just. Well, I think that this is where we don't know because I think that it, it's something that is a return of the past, which is the repoliticization, and it is something that is entirely new which without is the consequence. With, with the world that QE created yeah. from 2008. Yeah. And with so, America as the only issue of safe assets, insofar as you're willing to regard US Treasuries as safe. They're the only really large volume deep market in which you can trade AAA rated government securities, right? So there's certain kinds of things that couldn't happen in the old political world that can. I'd say in some sense Corbyn is a, is a good example um, you know, of that is, is because you, the financial markets would have created such acute constraints on decision making and that isn't happening. Yeah. And so the possibilities of politics go both ways and much further, much farther, I should say, than they previously did, even though something about what is happening is the same as what we've seen prior to the outliers of the 90s and the 2000s. I want to bring it back to what we were talking about before, but it feels like the one thing that does still work as a constraint, because that should benefit someone like Salvini. I mean, he should be free. But as you say, the thing that no one seems to be able to stomach is the thought of a country that's a member of the euro leaving, and that that seems to be a limit case where it would cause complete breakdown or meltdown that people seem to have at the edge of their minds so there is a sort of disciplining effect in the eurozone that's keeping these kinds of politicians out for now anyway well the whole whole history of the eurozone since 2008 is a demonstration of these extremes right at the one end you have people listening to me and helen talking might think well what on earth are they talking about look at greece and so at one end of the spectrum there are states which are massively victimized at the other end of the spectrum, at the same time, it's never been cheaper for democratic governments. Same old democratic governments with the same old moral hazard problems, the same old original sin problems to borrow, right, in the same world. And Italy is kind of the liminal case, right? It's a big, rich, sophisticated polity that, that ought to be totally safe and yet has a debt-to-GDP ratio that puts it perilously close to radical unsustainability. And it doesn't have the Bank of Japan which would be in a position to just hoover it all up. And that's why Italy stands out as this exceptional case. So everyone knows what the fix is for Italy. The question is whether one can nest that within the structure of the Eurozone and get the Dutch or the rest of the Hanseatic League and the Germans to agree to it. So we have the, it's a world which generates an Argentine problem. South Africa could slide there that has a Greece in it, but then also has a world in which Britain, I mean, to me, Britain is the case that's most extraordinary. I mean, in which period of history in the UK since the world World War II, could you have had the antics that we've had without the pound apocalyptically collapsing, right? Well, it's gone up this week, consistently. But there is, um, those two things are not unrelated to each other, because the one constraint that still really holds, or the thing that still matters in the way in which it used to, is currencies. So the reason why that Britain hasn't got that constraint is because it's it's got its own currency. And and, And, and an activist central bank, which is doing its best to hold the rent. And the reason why the constraint still holds in the Eurozone is, is because you still, even in this new world, can't get around the problem of having debt denominated in one currency and then having to change it into a currency of much less value. That's that, the terror. That's, yeah, that's, 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 that still remains. Nothing that's happened in 2000, since 2008 changes that. Yeah. So you said Merkel faces this dilemma with China, but we all face this dilemma with China, this, yeah. this question which is, and again, Adam, you've written about this, we're pretty dependent on Beijing holding it together. And at the same time, we look at what's happening in Hong Kong and we are... And Xinjiang. And we're horrified by the consequences of Beijing holding it together. And these dilemmas are acute at the moment. And furthermore, there's a big phase shift, isn't there? Once upon a time, 
an event like Hong Kong would have been inserted into a narrative that in a sense had led to convergence. In due course, Beijing will reform, progress, will resolve. Look at this extraordinary demonstration of the courage and sophistication of Chinese politics. And now, presumably, our best hope is basically forbearance on the part of Beijing, that they do not crack down, that they do not use absolutely massive lethal violence the way they clearly could, that they don't go for a Xinjiang kind of solution in, in Hong Kong. And so the best case is a, is a gamble on their rationality, <laughs> as it is in the economy, too. We're no longer saying to the Chinese, look, here's the toolkit, the closer you approximate this, the better we'll all be better off if you do. We're basically saying, well, we don't really know how you run your economy. We really, really don't. So far, so good. Just keep on doing and we'll watch with a kind of mesmerized awe as you manipulate all of the possible levers of economic policy that we used to have in the 50s. We gave up and you're playing with them. And I think that to me is where it's not so much a contrast as actually a continuity between our view of their economic policy uh, and our view of the calculus of the political situation now. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add is, is I, I do think that China faces a financial constraint on what it can do in relation to Hong Kong, because Hong Kong is what connects it to the rest of the world in a financial sense. It connects it to the euro dollar system in which China is very um, dependent. So if part of the old world, so to speak, the 90s world is, is that, you know, China would be constrained by some kind of financial interdependence, that is still to some extent there. But th yeah, the financial interdependence, I mean, we can tease this out, right? In Hong Kong itself, it's HSBC and Standard Chartered, and we've seen already the politics of Beijing intervening. It's not clear where HSBC sits currently in the hierarchy of, as it were, approved corporations. The Chinese have their own blacklist of corporations they don't regard as thoroughly loyal. They're mirroring the American behavior. And then, as Helen's saying, the neuralgic connections that run into the Chinese economy, the really big, and I think, I, I hope you agree, the kind of worrying elements of this are the real estate developers in China, who are a key part of the Chinese growth story, and have really drawn down very heavily on the on the dollar, the cheap dollar credit system. And there are several large entities in there, in essentially the Chinese shadow banking system, which are very vulnerable. And our sense, I think, is that Beijing has a better grip on, certainly in relative terms, on their shadow banking sector than we did before 2008, that they're acting quite proactively to try and drain that swamp and managing that. And they have enough currency reserves not to handle an all-out currency run, but certainly one that was driven by the balance sheets of those actors. That, I think, is precisely where the, where the game is being played at its most acutely. And then the question, of course, is that if that sector is going to be shrunk. Do the Chinese have an alternative growth motor to substitute for this credit-driven real estate vehicle, which has been so crucial? On top of, and I keep coming back to this, the green agenda, which is real in China and involves a massive structural shift out of the cement, steel, coal complex, which was crucial from the 90s onwards. And again, as I think you alluded to recently, that depends on the center holding. Like devolved power in China makes it much, much harder to hold the line on a national green agenda because local officials will just go for yeah, coal. There was this crucial moment in 2015 when faced with what looked like the first really serious recession that modern China's experienced, they decentralized decision making on coal infrastructure. Now, when they say decentralized, that, that's decentralizing to units which are the size of large European states. So this doesn't go all the way down. But nevertheless, that basically means that Hubei in particular is making its own decisions. That's where we see the huge 
the late phase spike in Chinese coal capacity. And that looms over humanity's future in a most direct and immediate way. A large part of the entire climate change agenda hinges on the decisions made in that province in that moment. And so the regime that potentially could use massive force in Hong Kong is the same regime that we need to use equivalent force of a different kind to green a nation. They were sending armed guards along with the environmental uh, inspectors shutting down the most polluting factories in 1617. And it involves, as it did in the 1990s, when China went through its first you know, restructuring of the Mao era heavy industrial complex, massive repression of worker unrest that, that we saw across China in the 1990s. I think the other thing, though, is, is what happens in terms of the state of credit in China depends on what the Fed does. Yeah. <laughs> so, and this is where, in some sense, I do think that the, the trade thing, it's not, I don't, I don't want to suggest that it's a distraction because that makes it sound like it's not important. It is important. But I think that actually the financial relationship, if it's a sort of a three-way thing that involves China, actually it's a four-way because it involves China, China's relationship to Hong Kong and what it's going to do in relation to, to Hong Kong, Trump and the Fed. You know, If the Fed Reserve Board would, would go ahead and make some more interest rate increases, which you know you could interpret some of its rhetoric of the last few months as suggesting that that's what it's got in mind. I can't actually see that it would do that. That would be incredibly problematic for China. So in terms of the Fed, then actually Trump and China are more likely on the same side. I don't want to make it even more complicated, but I was also reading just recently about the deal that we knew was going on between China and Iran but some more details of emerge of just the scale of it and the extent to which the Chinese do see this as an opportunity to start buying oil with their own currency on a massive scale. Does that potentially have an impact on this? I mean, Helen, you've often talked about the challenges China yeah. faces from escaping from a dollar world, but this is... Well, they clearly want to, but actually realising that in practice is a whole other... And the, that there is... Buying oil, oil in their own currency, in their own currency. Yeah, cutting America out of the in, in, oil. It depend, I mean, it goes as well to the question of the Saudis, which we haven't brought into mm. to, to all this. In fact, that involves a level of, of complication too much. But it is clear that if the Americans will be pretty tough with any move by any player to move away from dollar transactions for oil. China can do it to some extent, but there will be a, a limit to how much the US is going to tolerate that. And we can see in a way in which the Americans have dealt with the European Union countries over Iran that you know America does have means of getting its way when it comes to these currency issues. But what so, would its means be with China? If you say it's going to get tough with China, how, how does tough well, manifest itself? Tough manifests itself in terms of access to the American banking system, that's the problem that is caused for the European Union states. It's, it's to do with the ways in which the eurodollar system um, worked again. And that again, that goes back to China's vulnerability in regard to Hong Kong, because the way the world has not changed since 2008, even though there were plenty of people who thought that it might, is that the dollars not become less important. And is that still America's, we, we talked about this when we were talking about your book, mm-hmm. is that still America's ultimate weapon, the dollar and the American banking system? The fact that people just can't get by without them? There's an indirect threat, right? So the question really is for a major corporate player, is it worth taking the risk of ending up on an American blacklist? You know, you won't mention a direct challenge to America. You just really need to appear to have not complied with for a whole series of walls to go up in America for a large element of legal risk, basically, to enter your business model. 
And there are other people that you can sell oil to in the end, and there's other people that you can extend credit to. So yes, it exercises a huge chilling effect on the ability of any big players to break away. I mean, I, I would have thought the other one that has been explored for a long time is the Russian-Chinese connection. And you need actors like Russia, which basically don't do any business with the US, for this to be remotely credible. I mean, Russia does serious business and trade with Europe, but it does none, essentially, with the US. So that's where you could see a dyad emerging that could uncouple itself. But then the question, of course, is can the Americans reach out and put pressure on Russian business operations in the UK, for instance, and use that as a mechanism? But the Americans themselves when they're you know, calculating policy finally are sensitive to the limits of this weapon. If you overuse it, it, it backfires on you. There are certain markets you don't actually want to massively destabilize. If you talk to the people who are running sanctions against Russia and over the Ukraine, it was really, how much can we do before it really hurts? <laughs> um, because really hurting was not something they wanted to do to the world's largest oil producer at a moment when the fracking sector was under massive pressure from collapsing global oil prices. So these systems that work by way of playing on the attractiveness of a status quo and the threat is that you take it away, of course, depend on the credible promise to restore the status quo in an attractive form after the punishment has been withdrawn. Yeah, that's the game they have to play. But sensitive to the limits of this weapon is not a phrase people use about Donald the Trump. 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 No, exactly. Yeah, but I, I think as well is, is that it's not actually the dollar that's actually sensitive to the limits. Yeah. It's oil. Oil is the constraint. And you can see that in the way in which Trump has actually been a lot less confrontational about Iran than his rhetoric would suggest. And that he hasn't been as punitive with those who've carried on buying oil from Iran as the kind of language he was using when the new sanction regime began would 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 have suggested. And that is is because shale hasn't actually transformed America's power where oil, where oil is concerned. It's made it significantly improved America's power, not least because it's reduced its oil import dependency. But America is not the energy superpower of the world by itself. And there's a one there's one big market for oil, so the fact that you have your own sources of supply doesn't mean that if there's some major global disruption, prices go up. Prices go up because they're all benchmarked against the same global prices. So if you're a low oil price kind of president, the way that Trump likes to figure himself, then then you've, you can't have an interest in taking large slices of supply out of the market. Last question. It's a totally unfair question, but you're here. In this complicated, high-risk, interconnected set of scenarios that we described, how big is the risk, we, we always ask you this, how big is the risk of a global slowdown on a scale that would make the current sort of political pressures look quite light? You know, I think you know, politics has been extremely turbulent, but relatively speaking, in benign conditions. Someone can imagine conditions that are a lot less benign. Are we close to those conditions? I mean, yes. I mean, it does seem to me quite reasonable to expect a slowdown. In fact, in many parts of the world, this is an obtuse question because it's already happened. In a sense, Germany. Yes. Germany, obviously Latin America to a shocking extent there. South Africa is looking incredibly fragile. So that's our reality. The question is, I think, how bad it gets, how long it lasts, whether it becomes comprehensive. Because right now, outside the real crisis cases, it's confined largely to industrial and to manufacturing sector. It hasn't really spread to the service sector. And then what exactly would that add to a politics which even under relatively benign circumstances has already managed to generate? You know, 
this sort of trade war rhetoric, which was always the big fear in 2008 that we would retreat to 1931 or 29 or something. And well, you know, we've managed to get quite a long way there, even without a shock. So no, I think um, you know most market observers are expecting a very serious slowdown in the next year or two. But you know, I always have to add now, not to you know, not crash, not two thousand and eight. That's a heart attack. That's a massive liquidity crisis. Nor is that the same as the underlying problem, say, of gradually slowing productivity growth, which is affecting all the advanced economies. So there's a variety of different economic ailments, but this one is, I think, a very real risk. Which uh, you know, is a slowdown. Could it conceivably be the kind of thing that's not a crash? There are these long-term underlying problems that we need to address. Could it be that perfect sweet spot kind of slowdown that actually makes the politics go better? I mean, brings people to their senses. That I mean, that seems to me to be a gamble at long odds. I wouldn't. I, I, wouldn't I should accord, ask. I wouldn't accord to you know business cycles that kind of degree of power. It might present opportunities for action. Uh, it will license various types of action, as we were saying with regard to the eurozone. You know, for those of us who are quite committed to the European integration project, what I think we're worried about is that three years from now we'll be looking back on another missed opportunity. We talked quite a lot about Italy there. We're planning to do an episode on it with Lucia Rubinelli and Chris Bickerton later this month. There will be plenty to discuss. We're also going to be doing a live Talking Politics at the Politics Podcast Live Festival. That's happening in the morning, a Saturday morning on the 5th of October. We'd love to see you there. It's going to be with Helen and with Chris Brooke. Next week, Helen and I are going to come back to talking about Brexit. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. But also, I actually, I was doing something last week with someone, a British person, who said, married to an Italian, he said he's just bombarded with communications from his Italian in-laws who are just saying, like, we're with you, like, you're the only people standing up to the EU, the whole of Italy is behind you, which is probably not true, but that, that for many Italians, they look at us, so we think, they look at us and think, ha, 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 there's a country in even worse shape than we are. He said, no, 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 my in-laws are all like, you are at the vanguard of the struggle that we are all fighting well, against. But you, well, you guess you do pick your in-laws, don't you? Let's just say it's a complicated choice. <laughs> Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.